Hello, everybody. I'm Justin Czar, and welcome back to The Pinch Point. We have another great episode filled with fun things for me and editor extraordinaire Brando to discuss. So we're going to start off with, uh, we're going to just, I'm going to give you my review, my interpretation, if you will, of some of the knock on podcasts that Dudley released over the last like week or week and a half, something like that. I know I talked about them a little bit last week. Uh, I haven't gotten through all of them because there's an entire series chock full of information, uh, what he's calling the Truth About Arrows series. So I've listened to the majority of, I believe, four podcasts now. I started with the Ranch Ferry, Troy Fowler podcast. Then I went to the Joel Maxfield one. Then I listened to the one about Arrow Trauma with Peter Atia. And then I'm currently listening to the one with uh, Wild Bill, I believe they call him, from Iron Will, which is a great name when you're trying to rhyme things together, Wild Bill from Iron Will, which I think so far might actually be my favorite of the podcast. So I'll start with the first one. Ranch Ferry. Uh, Man, it seemed awkward. Um, That was the best way to describe that one. I felt like... Dudley was trying to be cool and tiptoe around some stuff, but kind of came off a little douchey and condescending to a certain degree during that one, which I I felt like if you're going to do that, just come out and do it. If you're going to be a dick, just just come out and do it, right? Don't try to kind of dance around it and be a little bit more PC about the whole thing. So I don't know. I'm not sure that I took a whole lot away from that particular podcast. I was a little underwhelmed. I, I felt like he was a little unprepared, kind of how I feel sometimes when I go into these podcasts. Like he didn't, he was like, I really don't know you. I don't know your background. I really don't know what you advocate for. I've never watched any of your videos. <laughs> all I really know is that people come up to me at these events and they talk about all your stuff and they show me their setups and I kind of disagree with a lot of it. That was the gist of it. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm, I don't know. I may re-listen to that one to see if there's anything that I can take away from it. But yeah, that that one, probably my least favorite. Uh, then I went into the Joel Maxfield podcast, which I really liked, but I felt like they were all over the place. And the other thing that, that took away from the experience of that one, if you're going to listen to that one, I think I would recommend watching that one on YouTube. I was listening to it on Spotify just because I listen to most of my podcasts when I'm driving or working out and I'm usually not watching them. And in Joel's case, he had a lot of like images, graphs, things like that, that really would have been helpful to see. So I may go back and rewatch that one as well. That one I did like more than the the Troy episode, just because I felt like there was a little bit more takeaway info, but they did get sidetracked a lot and talking about the old days when John was at Matthews, which was kind of cool in its own right to hear some of those stories from those guys working together way back in the day. Um, I also just, I like anything that Joel's involved with. That guy is just so incredibly experienced and just such a wealth of information that I, I was like, I have to listen to this again because I think there's a lot of takeaways from that one that I just didn't pick up on the first time around. But again, it felt a little disorganized and it wasn't what I was hoping for was like a very clear, like, I believe like, let's take a point. Let's take FOC. Let's address FOC. What is it? 
How does it work? Why do we believe what we believe? What is the popular consensus out there right now? Do we agree with it? Do we disagree with it? And why? I kind of wish they would have just gone like one thing at a time, but they kind of just bounced all over the place. So it was a little tough to follow at times, but it was a very enjoyable podcast to, to listen to. Third one I did was Peter Atia, who I'm a huge fan of. Um, I read his book Outlive, which is amazing, which is part of not really part of, I mean, I started doing my first bout of 75 hard and that was just one of the books that I happened to have started reading during that, but it really did change my outlook, um, just on my own future and health and taking care of yourself and all this stuff. So, and I had no idea that that dude was a bow hunter when I started reading that book, literally zero idea at all. Then I got into the book and there was a few references about archery and I was like, oh, this guy shoots archery. Then I came to find out like he's part of that whole... I don't know what you, we call it a cabal. Is that, is that the right thing. use That's of the word? Thing. I don't Maybe. know what that means. Usually it has like a negative it connotation. It makes me think of like right? Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, like the cabal of whatever they were. What, what is a cabal? I think it's a group of like cultists. Cultists? No. I want to say. It's a group of people who are united in some close design, usually to promote their private views or interests in an ideology, a state, or another community, often by intrigue and usually without the knowledge of those who are outside of their group. I don't know if that is good or not, but I feel like there's a cabal of people. I've I've internally referenced it as like the Joe Rogan like effect of bow hunting. Like Rogan and then like he really helped to catapult Dudley and Cam Haynes into the public sphere. And then those, those guys have run on their own since then. But then you've got like, you got the Jocko, you got the Peter Tia, you got the, just these other guys that are like in their sphere of influence, if you will. But anyways, the Peter Tia one, I really did enjoy just cause I think he's a great speaker. Uh, I liked a lot of the points that he brought up was, which, which was mostly about lethality of broadheads and how broadheads kill animals and uh, I'll kind of get to some of my takeaways from this, but that was really one that I felt like was was worth a listen. And now the last one that I'm on is this uh, Wild Bill from Iron Will, which I think is a, a pretty cool uh, episode as well. He is a professor, I believe. It sounds like, I think he's out in Colorado now, uh, but he's like a mechanical engineering professor or something like that. And they talk about all these studies that he does. Uh, I haven't gotten to the point where they're talking about arrow fletchings quite yet in the sound of those fletchings, but they are working towards what I believe is a point that I've brought up many, many times. When we talk about jumping the string, which is a a phrase that's been around for 30 or 40 years, which is the idea of a deer ducking uh, when you shoot an arrow at it or any animal ducking for that matter. And people have been like infinitely concerned about the sound of their bow right? How quiet is my bow when I shoot my bow? And I've long been shouting from whatever virtual mountaintop I can stand on by saying, it's not the sound of the bow going off that's scaring the animal. It's the sound of the projectile speeding towards its lungs and heart at 280 feet per second that is causing the reaction. So instead of trying to quiet your bow down so much, we should be worried about trying to shoot quieter arrows. And that that sound of your arrow, that whistling that sometimes people get is a product of two things, broadhead design and fletching design. So they're getting to that point. I just haven't reached it quite yet in the podcast to see what they say. Although I I do believe I did hear Bill say that in all the testing that they've done, I think it was the AAE hybrid hunter, I want to say, was kind of his vein of choice. 
Um, he didn't really say all the details yet, but they tested all the, the various veins out there. Um, so yeah, I'm interested in that one. And I think broadhead design plays a huge role in aero um, noise because I do think there's a lot of whistling that happens, especially with fixed blade broadheads that are vented, that have holes in the blades. And most of the time that's done to lighten the, the weight, to get the weight to that hundred grains or whatever they're going to need. I think that's what's causing a lot of the noise that we're, that the animal is hearing. And one of the biggest tests I think people can do, if you just do this on your own, go out there, find videos where somebody is shooting a deer um, the best ones to look for are like late season deer harvests uh, in a food plot, right? Because that they're pretty common. You can go on YouTube and find dozens of them, right? Where there's 15, 20, 50 deer in a field, right? And the only deer that is having the reaction to duck and drop and get out of the way is the one that's being shot at. Sometimes you'll see it if there's deer in close proximity to that deer, right? At the same time. But the deer that are farther away in the field or standing off to the sides or whatever, they react to the sound of the bow and they may look up, they may startle a little bit, but they don't ever have that same reaction of ducking and trying to get out of the way. And that's because they don't hear something coming at them through the air, which is the arrow. Um, I think, I don't know that you need much more proof than that, that it's your arrow that the deer is freaking out from, not necessarily the sound of your bow. If you were... I wish I could do this experiment. Maybe, maybe I could. You have a bunch of deer out in a field feeding or something like that. Just take your bow and I, I wouldn't advocate for this, but if you could take your bow and just shoot an arrow like up into the sky or in a completely opposite direction of whatever, wherever the deer is at, I promise you that deer will not duck and freak out the way a deer does when an arrow is being shot at. It may pick its head up. It may look, it may stop. You know, but it's not going to freak out the way that they freak out when you shoot an arrow at them. So, uh, again, I thought that was kind of a, an interesting topic that they're getting to. But my key takeaways, I think, from all of this podcasting, and I still have a couple more to go with Dudley, is really this. And it's the point that I think I even made last week. And this is a point I think that Joel Turner made um, in the Shot IQ podcast that he did with Rogan, where he was talking about people switching releases, right? We kind of go through this um, progression of releases. So most of us start with a, an index trigger and we're shooting it and we find that we're punching the trigger. We're having some target panic. So what do they do? Oh, I got to, I got to switch my release. I, I got to go to a thumb button. They go to a thumb button that works for a while. All of a sudden they start flinching. They start, they start punching that thumb button and they're like, oh man, I got to go to a hinge or I got to go to a resistance release. And they end up having the same problem. And ultimately what they're trying to do is find a mechanical solution for a mental problem. And I think the same thing is happening with all these arrow setups. The problem that we're trying to fix is bad shot placement, pure and simple. That's what we're trying to fix. And we're looking for any way to fix that problem with a mechanical solution, i.e. an arrow, a heavier arrow, a cut on contact broadhead, a bigger broadhead, a this, a that. We're like hyper obsessed with the gear that we're using. And we're just putting our obsession into the wrong thing. Our obsession should be starting with get a good tune on your bow. And this isn't rocket science. I was talking to somebody this morning. Every time I've ever tuned a bow and I've had a problem with it, 
where I'm having to make adjustment after adjustment after adjustment to try to get the thing to tune and shoot right, usually boils down to something's not set up right in the first place. You're usually better off, like Dudley says, square your arrow 90 degrees on the string so it's passing right through the burger hole, um, 13 sixteenths off the riser, and you're pretty good. Make sure your cams are in time. Like If you do that, your bow is probably going to shoot just fine. Um, but most of the tuning issues I've always had have been like my knock point was a little bit too high or a little bit too low or my rest was a little bit out of whack. And I'm starting from a point and I'm getting further and further and further away from where I know I need to be. And all of a sudden I'm like, OK, I finally got my my paper tune good. But now I go down the range and my arrow flight looks like absolute ass. Right. So start with the basics. Tear it all down. Make sure you've got good arrow flight. And then beyond that. They're saying on average, again, guys, there's always exceptions to every rule, 450 to 550 grain arrow. That's where you want to be somewhere in that range. Um, We understand that for some of the the shorter draw length people, it can be hard to get there. But 450 to 550 seems to be the sweet spot uh, for them. And again, I'm talking adult male bow hunters. If you're somebody that's young if you're somebody of smaller stature with a shorter draw length, like these numbers are going to be hard to hit for you. But anybody in that 28 to 30 inch draw shooting 65 to 70 pounds, which is most of us, 450 to 550 is all you need. Speaking of arrow weight and broadhead design, I always found this interesting. The people that tend to be most obsessed with arrow weight are the people that are shooting fixed blade broadheads your single bevel kind of crew that's out there, which interestingly enough, those are the people that should be least concerned with arrow weight. That is the best penetrating broadhead you can possibly find. So it doesn't take 600, 700, 800 grains to penetrate any animal you want to shoot with a fixed blade broadhead. In fact, you guys are better off in that 450 range because that's plenty. 450 to 500 is plenty to blow through any animal you're going to shoot with that broadhead. The guys that probably need a little bit of extra weight and a little bit extra oomph are the guys that are pushing the big mechanicals, which is kind of just counterintuitive to what we're seeing out there. We're seeing guys that are like, I need a single bevel, fixed blade, one inch cut, and I want to shoot a six to 700 grain arrow, which is completely unnecessary. So, uh, and even Bill from Iron Will, who's in the business of making badass fixed blade broadheads says you don't need these crazy weights on your arrows. Uh, So that was kind of my second takeaway. Third takeaway was like 285, you know, seems to be kind of a good arrow speed that most people should be shooting for. I'm sorry, there's a beeping forklift going on somewhere behind me. So if your audio is messed up, blame the neighbor. Um, So 285 is a good uh, spot to shoot for arrow speed wise. Uh, A lot of it is just having to do with forgiveness. So you want, you know, a flatter shooting bow as flat as you can get, especially as you start getting to longer distances, because, you know, as you get a slower shooting bow with a heavier arrow, those distances, just a couple feet or a couple yards can make a huge difference, especially when you start extending those shot distances out there. And that's more for the guys that are your Western, you know, your guys that are shooting 50 and 60 yards at Western game. That's more important for them. If you're just shooting 20, 30 yards, it's not as big of a deal. Unless you're in timber and you're worried about the the arc of your arrow hitting something. So 285, pretty decent speed for most people to be going for. And the last point that I just really enjoyed hearing was uh, Peter Atia, who's a, a, 
a doctor and he did his residency as a, like a trauma surgeon in I think Baltimore. I think he said Johns Hopkins is where he was at. So they were seeing tons of gunshot wounds, um, stabbing wounds, like literally like a dozen a day. I know there's tons of noise going on back there. It is what it is, Brando. Everybody just deal with it because we're having to deal with it. Uh, so anyways, uh, you know, what he says is like, there's countless stories of people that get, you know, shot with something uh, or get stabbed. And it's like, oh, man, you dude, what are they doing out there? The trash day. All right. So anyways, you know, there's all these stories of like, oh, man, if, if it would have been a millimeter this way, you would have died. Or if it would have been a millimeter that way, you would have lived. And that translates into deer, too. I've often said that, like, no two shots are ever the same. And no two shots into an animal's lungs are going to always produce the same results. And you guys, I'm sure, have seen this. You double lung an animal, it's like a bloodbath, and they go 40 yards and tip over. You double lung the next one, it runs 200 yards, and there's barely a drop of blood. And in a lot of cases, people are like, oh, it's my broadhead. I got This is what leads to the broadhead. It was my broadhead's fault. I shot this deer, and I didn't get the blood trail that I wanted. And it really wasn't the broadhead's fault. It was the shot placement because you just so happened to hit an area of the lung that didn't have as many, I don't know, whatever the, the biological term is capillaries or whatever in it to, to bleed. But it's, it's very interesting. He talks about like the liver, the liver has, I think, uh, two blood supplies, he said, which is, I think it's the only organ that has that. Uh, so normally you have one blood supply in and then blood flows out of all of your major organs, except for the liver because of the way it processes nutrients. And he basically talks like, if you hit this one blood supply, you can, the animal may still survive, right? But if you hit the other one, it's basically as good as dead. It's as good as uh, a double lung shot. So, and both of those are liver shots. And that may be the difference of just literally millimeters apart having dramatically different results, which to me just kind of like opens up the case for you want as big of a hole as possible because there's all these little things running through there that you want to try to hit. And for me, you want as much cutting surface as you can get to increase your likelihood of hitting those things. So anyways, that's the Dudley stuff. That's my kind of take on it. Um, some of it was good. Some of it not so good. Overall, I agree with a lot of what he said. Um, I would recommend everybody goes and views those for themselves. All right. So next up, we're going to talk about, Brando, you gave me an assignment last week. Do you remember what it was? Mm -hmm. To watch the uh, Beaumars. The leopard hunt? Yes. The hunt for Hannibal? Hunt for Is this Hannibal. the one you're talking about? Yep. So let me say this. Videography was awesome. The hunt was really cool. The only thing that I felt like was odd about this video is Josh's narration of the video where he's trying to be very like, in the dark continent of Africa, we go hunting for the leopard. Like, it was completely not his normal personality. So it's like you've, you, you've learned who Josh is. He's very high energy YouTube personality. And then when you hear him in this completely different context of trying to narrate his own video in a, like a completely way that's foreign to the way that he speaks, I didn't enjoy that part. Overall, I thought the video was, was badass. And dude, he made a, what a, what a great shot he made on that leopard. Like that was freaking cool. The videography was awesome. 
It was a little awkward when he was like dancing with the guys at the end. <laughs> I was like, that probably looks like what I would look like trying to dance around, <laughs> I suppose. And they got him like up on the chair. Like they got me some strong dudes. He's a big mofo, right? I thought it was a cool video. Don't get me wrong. Cool video. I, I in, in hindsight, I wish he would have had somebody else narrate it that like does that kind of narration, like hire a voiceover guy or something like that. Got Morgan Freeman to do it. Like it would have just made that a, a cool video epic. But I just like, I had a hard time listening to Josh in that context when every other time you hear him, it's just completely different than that, right? That was my only, my only piece of feedback. But great video. Speaking of Bo Mars, they got a new broadhead releasing today. I don't think the information has come out yet, but we'll talk about that next week in our gear episode. So let's move on to some more stuff we got going on. So now we're going to go through our, our news articles. So the first one that popped up in my feed the other day uh, is from the New York Times. And the headline reads, a state plagued by bear encounters turns to an old solution. Guns. A Connecticut law allows residents to kill bears in certain circumstances, but residents want a full-fledged bear hunt, which is allowed in almost every nearby state. So earlier this month, this was written by Amelia Nirenberg, reporting from New Haven, Connecticut. Earlier this month, Sarah Grant was inside her home in Sherman, Connecticut, a small town near the New York border. Her two-year-old was upstairs and her newborn daughter was in her arms. Suddenly, she saw her four-year-old son, Gavin, running up the driveway sobbing. A bear was close by. I screamed louder than I had ever screamed before, she said. Mrs. Grant's golden retriever, Jake, leaped forward and chased the bear off the property, driving it into the woods. Uh, so there's the anecdotal story about human-bear interactions, which have increased dramatically in Connecticut in recent years. You don't say. Hmm. We stop. Brando, are you dying back there? Are you okay? I'm good. I'm good. Okay. Blink twice if you're okay, Brando. Okay. Uh, so yeah, I mean, it's like shocking. Shocking news, everybody. We stopped managing the population of bears, and now it's out of control. Who would have ever guessed? Shocking, right? So uh, worried about public safety, government governor, I should say, Ned Lamont. Ned, what a great name. Ned, named after the rig, Brando, which you don't know what that means. He recently signed into law a measure that allows residents to shoot and kill bears under certain circumstances. If a person is uh, reasonably believes that a bear could seriously hurt a person or a pet, or if a bear is trying to enter a building with humans inside, you're allowed to go kill it. Obviously, that's going to be almost impossible to enforce. Somebody could be like, yep, shot this bear. It was trying to get in my house. Like, how's anybody ever really going to know? Uh, it prohibits intentionally feeding potentially dangerous animals like bears on private property. Uh, Connecticut is the only state in the Northeast with a significant bear population, but no bear hunting season. Hmm. How about that? Uh, so yeah, they're basically trying to say like, hey, this new law that we can kill these things is dumb and unenforceable. Why don't we just have a bear hunting season like everybody else in the neighboring areas? You guys may remember New Jersey at one point outlawed bear hunting because they had some wacko governor that was like anti-hunting and uh, the bear population exploded. Human to bear interactions went through the roof and all of a sudden they have an emergency bear hunt that they reinstated, which I think goes through like 2028 20, or 26, something like that. 
Like it's a couple years. They're like, yeah, we need to, we need to kill some bears. Shocking. I just like, this happens like over and over and over and over again. And it's just like, we never learn. That's how, that's how dumb we are. So yeah, Connecticut is hardly an outlier. This, this part I didn't really agree with in the article, bear sightings, which I don't know what that means, have risen in parts of Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Minnesota, Maryland, North Carolina, California, and beyond. Um, I don't know what that has to do really with anything. Many states are now debating how best to manage bears. Bear hunts are returning to states that had previously prohibited them, including in New Jersey, which re-legalized a limited cull. Uh, Governor Philip D. Murphy had suspended the hunt on state property in 2018, but then bear sightings and aggressive encounters increased. Who would have thought? Who would have thunk? Old Phil out there was like, let's quit killing the bears. Two years later, everyone's like, yo, there's bears everywhere. Like, we need to do something about this. <laughs> Shocking. I had no idea. So there you go. That's what that's what's happening out in Connecticut, which is how I've always pronounced it in my mind. So moving on from the bears, uh, should we go to poaching next, Brando? Or should we go to a man impersonating an officer and stealing a hunter's gun? Oh, let's save that for last. Should we go last on that one? Yeah. So we're, so we're going to go to the poaching. All right. So let's go. No, I think for the last, we're going to end on a good note because okay. that's always our goal. So we're I not going to do I that. I thought that one was a good note. <laughs> <laughs> it is kind of a, a funny story. Let's just, uh, let's get our, our poaching ones out of the way. First of all, we have a man pleading guilty in federal court to killing a bald eagle in Stanton County. Uh, I don't know which state this is taking place in, but uh, one of two Honduran nationals who had been living in Norfolk, that's, is that Virginia? Norfolk, Virginia? I feel like if I know my geography. Earlier this year has pleaded guilty to a misdemeanor crime stemming from the killing of a bald eagle. Domingo Zatino Hernandez pled guilty last week to violating the Bald and Golden Eagle Protection Act. Uh, he shot it with a high-powered air rifle. I'm not really sure why him and his buddy, 20 years old, they were like, we're going to kill, we're going to go into the state park with a high powered air rifle and we're going to kill this eagle. So he, there you go. He pled guilty and he may be forcing uh, deportation because he was here illegally to begin with. Build that wall, protect our eagles. Let them come in here illegally, Brando. Then they shoot our eagles. Come on, man. The, the most anti-American thing possible. <laughs> yeah, that's no way to win us over. All right, so I already we're going to close my tab of what a cabal is. Let's go to the next poaching case. This is I don't know if this is really poaching. This is a sad story. A pet peacock named Pete, a lot of alliteration. Pet peacock Pete was killed after he was shot with arrows in a Las Vegas neighborhood. Uh, Las Vegas neighborhood is outraged after someone shot a beloved pet peacock with a hunter's bow and arrow and killed him. Uh, so the story goes that somebody found Pete. He was still alive up against the fence and he had an arrow stuck in him. They took him to a emergency vet, but he had just lost too much blood. And they actually were trying to look around to see if they could get a blood transfusion for Pete from another peacock somewhere. That's how desperate they were to, to save Pete, the peacock. Um, but unfortunately Pete did pass. Uh, this is such a senseless crime. I don't understand how anybody can just be so morbid and just shoot a defenseless animal. Uh, this person said concerned the culprit could be capable of harming a person as well. That's always like something they, sh they like to throw in there. Like if you could kill an animal, 
what could you do to a person? I don't know. That's not like a real thing. Uh, I will not stop until I find out who did this to him. We have to do something for Pete. Fox 5 obtained an email from the Castlegate HOA asking neighbors to check their surveillance video and report information to authorities. A possible charge for the crime could be misdemeanor animal cruelty with a penalty up to six months in jail and a fine of up to $1,000. So, I don't know. Some jerk shot Pete. Why would you kill the, the peacock? Like, did they not like it? Was it doing something? I mean, it had to have been like some kids, right? You think so? It's yeah, always it's, just it's, it's always it's, the kids. Kids just get looking for trouble. Well, poor Petey. All right. Uh, so we went over Washington. Let's go. We got two more articles to run through. The Weedsport man arrested for impersonating a DEC police officer, which is the Department of Environmental Conservation, and stealing a rifle from a hunter. This is an old story that somebody posted, but I had never heard this one before. This is back from September, so I felt like it was worth uh, worth a mention. 24-year-old Weedsport man is facing five felony charges after authorities arrested him for impersonating a DEC or conservation officer and stealing a rifle from a hunter. Uh, according to the DEC, a man later identified as Zachary Harvey approached a squirrel hunter in the wildlife management area around September 6th, claiming to be an undercover ECO. Uh, he had been fishing at the time and he was dressed in civilian clothes, demanded to see his hunting license. Um, and then he basically took, took the guy's gun. <laughs> Which I don't know why. Did he just want the guy's gun? Was he mad that he was squirrel hunting while he was there fishing? Uh, he grabbed their hunting license, pretended to check them all, and took their firearms. Uh, after faking a phone call with the local sheriff's department, dude, he, this guy went all out. He pretended to be checking firearm serial numbers. He just walked off with the squirrel hunter's twenty-two rifle, informing the hunter later via email that the rifle was illegal under New York State's new gun laws. At one point during the confrontation, one of the victims had asked to see his badge, but he only showed them a picture of one on his phone. What? (laughs) That's just a crazy story. I mean, it takes some balls, right? To just walk up to some dudes with guns and pretend to be a cop. Like, just like the. And then just take his gun and leave. Like, the (laughs) premeditate. Like, if he didn't premeditate this and plan it and calculate what he was going to say, like, that that one. one Yeah, obviously, they must have suspected something because they were like, where's your badge? And then he, what he, what did he Google? uh, What did Google image search? Like, He's like, we don't carry actual badges. We just have electronic badges. Here's this picture on my phone. <laughs> I just found a Google image search. <laughs> oh, it's kind of a funny story, like craziness. So we're going to end this week on a high note. I thought this was great. Maybe more states should do this. Arkansas Game and Fish offers $713,000 of poaching fines to Arkansas schools. Little Rock, Arkansas, a partnership between the Arkansas Game and Fish Commission and the Arkansas Economic Development Commission's Division of Rural Services, which is, that's as government as government gets, uh, has turned nearly three quarters of a million dollars in poaching violations into an educational opportunity. A news release stated that the AGFC has set aside all wildlife and fishing fine money collected in each Arkansas county last year specifically for education grants that teachers may use to increase conservation education efforts in schools. So after our previous story of the Biden administration trying to defund our archery in the schools programs because they're a-holes, we have a good story. 
where a government said, hey, we're going to take all the money from the douchebags that did stuff wrong and paid fines. We're going to give it to the schools to increase conservation education efforts. The money is available in the form of a grant uh, with teachers and administrators having until October 25th to apply on the website. Uh, The release states that the amount of money available in each county is based on the fines collected in that county, any unused funds from previous years, and any unused funds from previous years. Any school or conservation district in Arkansas may apply for these grants regardless of size or population. Last year, these grants paid for everything from field trips to nature centers and educator workshops to building butterfly habitats and other outdoor experiences right on school grounds. Grants averaged about $3,000 and ranged from $300 to $16. Thousand five hundred. The grant amount really boils down to find money available in each county and the number of applicants. Um, that's pretty cool. I like that. I wonder what happens to all the fine money in Illinois here. Um, politician pockets perhaps? goes to paying the pensions of all of our fine public sector workers that retire when they're like fifty and collect more money in a pension than most of us make in our actual jobs. Not that there's anything wrong with that. So yeah, good for you, Arkansas. Arkansas. Why is it pronounced Arkansas? Arkansas. Arkansas. Why is it pronounced Arkansas, but Kansas is pronounced Kansas? And it's spelled literally the same way. Literally. How about people that say literally versus literally? The wrong emphasis on the wrong syllable. I don't understand what you just said. <laughs> it took me a second. I was like, what is he doing? Is Brandon having a stroke? I was not, I was unsure of what you were doing. So that is all of our stories for the poach point this week. We got the guys shooting the bald eagle, the illegals. The, like they just, you got to just really hate America. Aren't they supposed to love America? Like they all come here like, we love America. We want to get jobs. And that's a terrible like thing, like we love your country. We we want to be there. You guys are the best. And then they're like, we're gonna kill your your national bird with an air rifle in a in a park. They came here just for that. You think so? They're like, let's go get them. We're gonna show these guys. We hate America. The man impersonating the officer. We covered that. We covered the crazy bear hunting situation in Connecticut. We went over Hannibal, the hunt for Hannibal, a dark, sinister story. There was one point of that where he was like, I want to hunt Hannibal, the killer of his own kind, where I was like, eh, we're getting a li- we're getting a little dramatic. We were getting a little bit dramatic, a little over the top. Overall, still a good video, though. Do you think he gets to bring the leopard back, like get it mounted and bring it back? There's all sorts of weird mm-hmm. rules now about what you can and can't do. I think he probably just takes the pelt. Yeah, I'm assuming you, you probably could. Still a cool hunt. I wonder what it costs to go shoot a leopard in Africa. I'm gonna go. I'm I'm gonna put a guess at like twenty grand, twenty five grand. What do you think? Is that is that a uh, ballpark? You think African leopard hunt cost? Let's see what the Google machine has to say. Costs are approximately twenty five to thirty thousand dollars for a fourteen day hunt. Woo! So there you go. That's an expensive ass leopard. But as Josh said in his video, all that money paid for all those fine folks that were that's why they're so happy they just got paid <laughs> Yoo-hoo! thanks white dude for all your money so uh yeah that's all we got for the pinch point this week guys make sure you subscribe like comment five star ratings four star ratings let's try to avoid the three star ratings if we can we're not that bad are we 
pump up those ratings for us, everybody. And uh, we will see you next week right here on the pinch point. We're doing our gear episode. So we'll talk about Bomar. We'll talk about some UV stuff that people have recommended. So if you guys have any products you want us to take a look at and give our semi-professional feedback on, make sure you leave that in the comments and we will do that next week. We'll see you guys later. Peace out.